0: You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to you in your word, we we need your spirit to speak to us. And so open the eyes of our hearts to behold Christ and him crucified and what it really means to be a servant and steward of the truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, this is really part one of a two-part series. We are going to continue in uh, 1 Corinthians 4 uh, into next week, and so uh, you'll just have to come back for the rest. Uh, But suffice it to say, we tackled the first part uh, this morning, and Paul continues with the theme, talking about where things have gone wrong in Corinth, and namely, that they had a human-centered idea of their existence, their personal existence, their church existence, and even in their relationship to God. Not a God-centered existence. And so this led to all kinds of factions, and we've already learned that some people were saying, I go after Paul, and I go after Peter, and I go after Apollos, Uh, and still some self-righteous others say, well, I go after Christ. And so all of these factions had developed within the life of the Corinthian church, And Paul finally begins to set them to rights. He already talks about the divisions in chapter 3. But here he talks about what it ought to look like or what we ought to be looking for in those who are called to be pastors, those who are called to be preachers. Because rather than following the preachers, Paul certainly wants to encourage them to follow after the Lord Jesus Christ and to learn how to love one another, which is the highest mark of maturity in the Christian faith. And by doing that, he uses two metaphors, one of a servant and one of a steward. Here in verse 1, talking about being a servant of Christ. And the word here used is not the traditional word for servant, diakonos, from which we get the word deacon, uh, but in fact is the Greek word used for a galley slave, Uh, the person who was at the bottom of the boat, who was chained to the oar, and their only job was to row. Uh, This is the lowest of the low. How many of you have seen Ben-Hur? Row well and live. This is the kind of person that Paul is talking about. A simple galley slave who is chained to their task literally and has one job and one job alone, and that is to row. So that's the kind of servant that he's talking about, and this is largely lost in Christian ministry. It seems to be lost here in Corinth, and it is certainly lost here today. Today. Jesus himself modeled what it looked like to be a galley slave for the sake of others, for the glory of God, when he said, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And he modeled that throughout his ministry, didn't he? It wasn't that Jesus was looking for deference, which is what every preacher pretty much looks for today. I mean, I can remember... Uh, Just a couple years ago, you may remember we put that funny thing up for April Fool's Day that the Advent was getting a Learjet. Do you all remember that? And unfortunately, some people thought we were being serious, which is kind of the point because then we can say, well, that makes you a fool um, because we're not getting the jet unless you like to buy one. Uh, But I was flying commercial air to see Stephen McCarthy, who later served here, uh, up to to be with him for his ordination in Boston. And after flying... Up there on commercial air, I wanted to call Creflo Dollar, who was the one who wanted the jet. He told his congregation, we need X millions of dollars to get the jet. And I was ready to say, Creflo, I'll go halvesies." (laughs) Uh, And for preachers, it really is hard not to fall into that trap. This is why Jesus says about the scribes in Luke chapter 20, he says this. He says, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues, in the places of honor at feast, who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Well, aside from devouring widows' houses, that's the job description of many a preacher today. They like to wear long robes, they like to have special seats. They drone on and on in their prayers. They like to have people greet them in the marketplace because they want all of the attention to be put on themselves. And it becomes second nature. I was talking once to the daughter of Arthur Lichtenberger, who was the presiding bishop in the late 50s and early 60s of the Episcopal Church, and she said that she can remember as a little girl, Jeffrey Fisher, the Archbishop of Canterbury, came to stay with them. And when Archbishop Fisher went to bed that night, he put his shoes outside of the door, expecting them to be shined. And she said she can remember going down, hearing this commotion in the kitchen, and there was her mother, the wife of the presiding bishop, shining Archbishop Fisher's shoes. Now, on the one hand, it's a little embarrassing that the Archbishop of Canterbury just assumed, well, certainly you'll have servants who will do this. But how humbling it is that the wife of the presiding bishop Shine the Archbishop's shoes, not looking for any acknowledgement or recognition, and I know too that that I really like deference uh, I like uh, taking advantage of my position in all the wrong ways, really. Uh, you know, Lauren asked me last night when we went out to dinner at a restaurant that is very hard to get a reservation to well don't they don't don't they know who you are, and don't you think that they could get you a seat and i said. No, they don't know who, me, who I am. And if they did, we're definitely not getting a table. <laughs> but it's all of our propensity to look for deference in our own lives. And yet the posture that Paul talks about and the posture that Jesus models is one of a servant. Kneeling at the feet of those whom they're called to serve, washing their feet. And the understanding of pastors ought to be this, that the congregants do not belong to them, but we belong to you. It's normally the other way around, isn't it? But do you understand that I belong to you? You don't belong to me. Because let's face it, even if I'm here for a very long time, some of you have generations in this congregation and have seen many dean and rectors come and go. And so we're here for just a short time, and our job is to minister to you and be a servant to you to bring you along to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, of course, we are answerable to God, which is why Paul uses the language of stewardship. The Greek word here actually is from, what we get, from where we get the word economist. But you know what a steward is, don't you? Their job is to manage an estate, to take care of property that doesn't belong to them. But the idea of stewardship often gets lost. And I love the way that Dick Lucas describes stewardship. He says, here's what stewardship is. Say that you have been hired by someone to take care of them. Most especially that you're to make their breakfast in the morning. And the person who has hired you has said, I want one egg and a piece of toast in the morning. And the first morning, you produce an egg with no toast. Well, of course, the master would say to you, you know, here's a helpful reminder that I like one egg and one, toast, and one piece of toast. So the next morning, you think, well, I'm going to do one better. I'm going to give the man one egg, a piece of toast, and two strips of bacon. To which the master would respond, one egg, one piece of toast. And then the next day, you make him fish burritos or something like that and the man thinks he's you've totally lost your mind. But you see that's what stewardship is. It is not to do any more or any less than is asked of you. Your job is to be faithful. And that's what Paul is saying to pastors, to be a steward of the mysteries of God. Now this isn't any sort of mystical thing that that Paul is talking about. It's the language that he likes to use to talk about who Jesus Christ is and what he's done for us, which is a mystery to the world whose hearts are veiled to the gospel. But when our eyes are open, it's no longer a mystery, is it, as to who Jesus is and what he's come to do. And he says, this is what you're to be a steward of as a pastor. And I think that more than just being a pastor, I think this applies to all of us that we're to be a steward of praise, that we're to be a steward of judgment, and that we're to be a steward of God's word. So when he says, But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring light to the things now hidden in darkness, and will disclose the purposes of the heart, then each one will receive his commendation from God. So he's not just warning against false, or not false, but negative judgments, but I think he's also warning us against positive judgment that we might become too inflated. He gets to that later on in verses 8 through 11, or alludes to it. He's talking about don't let yourself get so puffed up that you think that it's you and not God. I shared the story last week of Lauren's encounter with Tim Keller. And she stood next to him one evening while he kept receiving people who came up to him saying, This is how God has used you in my life. He, I read your book and God changed my life in this way. Or I heard this sermon that you preached and, and God used it in this way to change my life. And Lauren finally looked at Tim Keller and said, It must be overwhelming. To know that God has used you in such an amazing way in people's lives. And Tim Keller looked at my wife and said, Well, if it wasn't me, it would just be somebody else. Right? That's what Paul is saying, isn't it? That, that it actually isn't you. And, and don't buy into the false praise. No, certainly uh, there are those who are stewards of God's word that may help you understand God's word better in a way that others may not have. But we always have to remember that the gift is from God and comes not from us, as he would later go on to say. And so we need to be good stewards of the praise that is given to us. Absolutely receive it. Uh, Not false modesty, but when someone says thank you, we ought to recover two words, one's a contraction and the other is not, that we have completely lost in our culture. And those words are, you're welcome. Uh, Now when people, you say thank you to someone, they say what, Beck? No, thank you. Well, no, that's why I'm thanking you. And so we should simply receive it and say you're welcome. Uh, and to give praise to God for it that he used you, a jar of clay in order to take the gospel and to speak to them in a way that they could hear. And so we're able to manage that praise, don't let it go to your head, but also to be able to receive it uh, with joy as a testimony of God working in their life and not just in yours. But also being a good steward of judgment. Now Paul would certainly have taken to heart if the criticisms that were being laid at his feet had truth in them. And that's hard for any of us to hear. We don't want to hear false judgment, but, even, but it's even harder, I think, to handle judgment that has truth rooted in it. Uh, because it's really hard to say, I'm sorry, or I repent, and, and to make amends. Uh, But the thing that Paul is talking about here are false criticisms and false accusations and people jumping to great conclusions. I think most of us manage praise really well, but almost every single one of us mismanages judgment to the nth degree. Think about the conflicts that you have in your life that may have started from something very small but now has bloomed into something great. Or even in our culture of social media actually leading to higher rates of things like suicide. What we're taking to heart, things that God says you ought not to think and take to heart in the same way because the Holy Spirit ought to give you a layer of Teflon on your heart and to deflect it up to God. So when the praise comes in and we say it goes to God, where should the criticism go as well? To God. That's where it goes. Uh, I was talking to a friend about this the other day. And he said, I know how. He said, This is very negative, but I'm going to say it anyway. He said, if I ever wanted to give my wife a heart attack, I know how to do it. And I sort of looked at him thinking like, and I said, you know, this is one of those things that isn't confidential. And I'm going to have to share with the authorities if it comes to that. And he said, no. He said, if I wanted to give my wife a heart attack, what I would do is I would get all of her best friends to go over to one of their friends' houses and have their cars in the driveway and then have my wife drive by the house. Now, why would that undo his wife? Because they're all, you got it, how, why? Because it's her friends and she, leaving her out. FOMO, right? Fear of missing out. And don't we all do that? that? That something that might actually have a, maybe they're organizing her surprise birthday party. Uh, maybe uh, uh, something has happened that, that may not include uh, the wife. Who knows for a million reasons? But the moment that we see something like this or we receive a word like that, our, we go from zero to 100 just like that. And it completely overwhelms us and we're even crippled by it that we're not actually able to interact with other people because we're undone by this criticism. And so in the same way that we give the praise to God when it comes in, when false judgment comes in or the assumptions that we make, where should that go to? To the same place, up to God. And this is especially hard for preachers uh, who very readily take everything to heart But in fact, what Paul is saying is that if you're going to be a good steward of God's word, you have to get past what people think. Because quite frankly, it doesn't matter what people think. It matters what God thinks. Now there, as I said before, are many things that you ought to say to me. Uh, One of the hardest things that I have in my role is having to talk to other preachers about their sermons. No other preacher wants to hear, that was not good. For whatever reason uh, it might uh, it might be but I understand that when other preachers come to me and talk to me about my sermons that actually that makes me a better preacher and I ought to be able to receive it for what it is and actually that which I shouldn't take to heart should get deflected up to God and finally Paul says that we ought to be a steward of God's word in verse 6. Where he says, "I have appealed uh, well, first he says, being a good steward of God's word, but in uh, six, he says, "I have applied all these things to myself, and Apollo's for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another." All right, this is the definition of stewardship that I talked about earlier. No more and no less. And this seems to have been a saying in the early church that you're not to go beyond what is written. Written where? In God's Word, in the Bible. And so if you have preachers that begin to go beyond what is written, they've actually gone beyond what God has said. And then you're getting a sermon on the book of second opinion instead of what God would have to say to us. This is why I love the way that the old ordinal in the 1662 Book of Common Prayer puts it. It says that we're to be those who are being ordained are to be messengers, watchmen, and stewards of the Lord. Messengers, watchmen, stewards of the Lord. It almost sounds like Lord of the Rings, doesn't it? This this these three great offices to be messengers. What are we to be as messengers? We're to take the message that we've been given no more, no less. Watchmen, we're to be on the lookout for that which goes beyond what is written, and stewards to take care of that which is given us, not going on beyond what is written. And to understand that it's not us, but God who gets the glory. That preachers are not to strive so much to be successful as they are to be faithful. Robert Murray McShane, who was a wonderful pastor in Dundee, Scotland, uh, was uh, taken uh, at a very young age from this world. Uh, and In the short time he was given, he was a remarkable pastor at St. Peter's Church there in Dundee. But he was called away to go to see what ministry possibilities there might be in Palestine amongst the Jews there. And after laboring for years in Dundee, while he was in, while he was in, uh, in the Mediterranean, this is what his biographer Andrew Bonar said about him. It was much feared for a time that a jealous spirit would prevail among the people of St. Peter's. Some saying, I am of Paul, and others, I of Cephas. Those recently converted were apt to regard their spiritual father in a light which they could regard none besides. But Mr. McShane had received from the Lord a holy disinterestedness that suppressed every feeling of envy. Many wondered at the single-heartedness he was enabled to exhibit he could sincerely say i have no desire but the salvation of my people by whatever instrument now what's remarkable about this is that a great revival took place while he was in the mediterranean and this is what was what he wrote about that in spite of so that's what mcshane said he believed but what happens when the rubber meets the road Bonar writes, the cry of his servant in Asia was not forgotten. The eye of the Lord turned toward his people. It was during the time of Mr. McShane's sore sickness that his flock in Dundee were receiving blessing from the open windows of heaven. Their pastor was lying at the gate of death in utter helplessness. But the Lord had done this on very purpose, for he meant to show that he needed not the help of any. He could send forth new laborers and work by new instruments when it pleased him. Well, that's exactly what happened in the life of Robert Murray McShane, that as he lay dying uh, in the Mediterranean, he would eventually get back to Dundee. All that he sowed and all that he watered had started to come to fruit. And you know what McShane's response was? Praise the Lord. He was overwhelmed by it. And when he entered back into Dundee, he walked into St. Peter's Church to give his first sermon, and it was packed to the rafters. And he began to weep as he began to pour out God's word to his people, counting it all joy that that great work happened even while he was not there. And this is what Paul is saying, is that apart from the Spirit of God, you can do nothing. And so even as a Christian believer, whether you're a preacher or not, When praise comes, when criticism comes, if you're not rooted in the Lord Jesus Christ and seeking to live within that which is written, when that stuff comes, it'll destroy you. It'll completely undo you. And as a preacher, uh, uh, Dr. Campbell Morgan, who was at Westminster Chapel in London for decades, uh, found himself getting great crowds coming to Westminster Chapel. The world was smiling upon him. And as the crowds began to grow, Campbell Morgan found that he was spending more time preparing his sermons than he was praying over the sermons he was to deliver. And then one day as he was about to go into the pulpit, he said he heard an audible word so much that he was convinced that it was the person sitting next to him that said, Go on, great preacher. Go on, enter the pulpit, but without God. And he realized even with the great crowds and even with all the accolades, It meant absolutely nothing. And so, in the world in which we inhabit, in which you and I live, how do you handle criticism? How do you handle praise? Do you have a Holy Spirit-inspired Teflon heart that allows you to direct the praise up to heaven and to not become inflated and to think that everyone ought to defer to you and that you are owed something, that somehow you've earned it? Or when the criticism comes, are you able to deflect that too and say, I am in Christ. My life is hidden with him on high. And it's his grace and it's in his love that I stand. And God's word is a testimony to go beyond it. And if I start believing what you have to say, it means that I've gone beyond what is written. And so allow me to stand in God's word. Allow me to rest in him. For apart from him, not only can I do nothing, but apart from him, I am nothing. Let us pray. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that we are your children, that you've bought us with the precious blood of Christ, that you've adopted us by grace, and we pray that we would not get inflated heads over the praise that we receive, that we would not be deflated by the criticism that we receive, but Lord, that we would strive to only please you and to serve you in all that we do, and that you would impress upon our hearts of your great love for us, and that we are to stand in it, and that we would look to nowhere else other than your word for the right and sure testimony that you love us. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.